So Acts chapter 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Good day, everyone. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at HBC. Welcome again if you're tuning in from afar and welcome if you're a HBC regular. I know it's been said lots, but I do miss seeing everyone on Sundays. It's been great going through the book of Acts, hasn't it? From the very first chapter in Acts, we've seen how Jesus has been at work through the disciples in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and beyond. But I wonder if you've noticed a pattern that keeps repeating. 
Nearly every time the message about Jesus gets preached, it stirs up trouble. Have you noticed that? We've seen the apostles get persecuted in Jerusalem by the Jewish leaders and then by Herod. Stephen got stoned. James got killed. Peter was in prison. And then as the gospel spread, we've seen it come up against opposition in Samaria and Damascus. And last week, we looked in chapter 13, where Paul and Barnabas go on the world's first mission trip, only to get opposed in Cyprus, and then they get expelled from Antioch. And so you've got to wonder, what is it with these early Christians getting into trouble? Was it something they did? Were they not culturally appropriate? Did, did they put people off in some way as they presented the message? Or is there something, is there just something about Christianity that makes people angry and stirs up trouble? Because this pattern of preaching followed by trouble, that's what happens in Acts 14. It's what Acts 14 is all about. We see the message of the gospel stir up trouble in two more towns. Have a look again at what happens in Iconium, the first town. Chapter 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Here, it's almost like the events we read about in chapter 13 that happened in Antioch repeat themselves but to an even greater extent this time. There's even more Jews and more Greeks believe, but there's also more opposition. And I do love how Paul and Barnabas respond to this opposition. See from verse 2, the Jews poison their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord. Isn't, isn't that incredible? See what they do when they face this opposition? They see opposition, and for them, that's a reason to stay longer. Isn't that amazing? So there they stay. That's where they stay, under threat. And they even perform miracles there. Although there does seem to be a point where they hesitate. Take a look from verse 5. There was a plot, <laughs> a plot afoot among both the Gentiles and the Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone Paul and Barnabas. But they found out about it and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continue to preach the gospel. So again, we see, the, we see gospel preaching followed by more trouble. And when the opposition starts to get maybe violent, that's when Paul and Barnabas take their cue to move on to the next town of Lystra, where it happens again. But Lystra is interesting because in Lystra, they face a completely different type of trouble. This time, it's not from the Jews in Lystra. Instead, the trouble comes from the other religions in Lystra. See, normally what Paul and Barnabas would do is they would arrive in a new town and they would start teaching the gospel in the Jewish synagogue. But it seems there's no synagogue in Lystra because there's no Jews in this town. And so this time, Paul's probably out on a street corner or at the city gates, where it was normal for people to stand up and preach in public. So that's, so, so there's Paul. Paul's there preaching about Jesus, and while he's preaching, he heals a man who was unable to walk. And that's when the chaos starts. Take a look in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, 
they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So, all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas get thrust into the, the Listerian limelight. But this time, it's not so much because of the message they were preaching. It's because of the miracle they performed was misunderstood. See, these people in Lystra, they didn't have Jews in their town. And so they didn't know about the God of Abraham and Moses and King David and the Old Testament. They had their own gods and their own religious ideas. And so when they saw this miracle, they interpreted it through their own religious ideas. They didn't understand enough of what Paul was saying to properly understand the miracle. So they interpreted it to fit their own assumptions about the world. I think we see this type of thing happen today as well. You tell your friends that you go to church and what goes through their mind is completely dependent on what they believe about church. So if they think church is some old, useless, oppressive institution that makes you feel bad, then that's what they think we do. See, our actions don't do a great job of communicating our Christian beliefs. Even when we try to do good things and live lives that are good, that please our Lord, the world around us can still misinterpret our Christian actions. So if we refuse to go along with the schoolyard gossip and talking about people behind their backs, people can think that we're just being self-righteous or, or, or holier than thou. When we're careful about not drinking too much, many people will just assume that we're the designated driver or we've got work in the morning. They won't assume it's because we're Christian and that we believe as Christians that God hates drunkenness. In fact, even when people know that we're acting in a certain way because we're Christian, they can still mistakenly assume we do those things in order to appease our God and, or to earn our salvation, even when that's so far from why we do it and from what we believe. It's one of the reasons why you can't preach the gospel without words. Yeah, our lives should reflect and adorn the message we speak, but without any words, our actions are just too open to misinterpretation. And so it's important to take the opportunities when they arise to explain what we believe, the Christian message that sits behind our behaviours. That's what Paul tries to do in the midst of this Lyconian chaos. Take a look again at how Paul responds in verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. So here, Paul and Barnabas desperately try to correct the Lyconians' wrong thinking and wrong beliefs. Paul starts by declaring that he and Barnabas are just humans too, just like the Lyconians. Nothing special, nothing intrinsically different between Paul and them. In fact, what... Paul doesn't even think he's more valuable because he's a Christian or even because he's, he's a gospel worker. That is, I love how Paul identifies himself with the Lyconians here. That's how we're meant to think about those around us who are not yet Christian. We're not better than them. We're, we're just like them. The 300,000 people in Newey and Lake Mac who don't know and trust and love Jesus, they're just like us, aren't they? We, we want God to do 
for them the very same thing he's done for us. We're all just humans who desperately need God's grace. That's the heart of the Christian message we speak. That, that God's done something for me and he's done it for you too. In fact, that's what Paul says next. Take a look at how what he says in verse 15 again. He says, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. See, what Paul desperately wants for his, for his fellow human beings in Lystra, he desperately wants to tell them the good news. Now, the word there for the good news is where we get the word evangelism and even the word the gospel. Uh, and so the word for, so the word evangelism or telling someone the gospel, it, it's just the, the word there, it just means to tell someone some news, but, but not just any news, it's not just minor news, it's telling someone great news. That's what the word means there, great news, important news, news that you simply must stop everything you're doing and listen to this. This is news that's going to change your world. That's what Paul wants to tell them, news that's going to change their world. So what is this news? Well, take a look at verse 15 again. Paul's big news for the Lyconians is that their religion, their culture, their whole way of thinking is worthless. But the true and living God wants to forgive them. Have a look again at verse 15. We are bringing you great news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Paul looks out at this crowd, some of them trying to worship him, some of them trying to worship Zeus because of the miracle, some of them just confused. And he wants them to know their creator. He wants them to know the one who made them and the world that they enjoy. Paul wants them to know the one who they should thank because they had it all wrong. Their whole culture and religion was based on trying to work out if they needed to thank Zeus or Hermes or some other Roman god for everything they had. But Paul, filled with love for them, calls out their culture and their heritage for what it is. Worthless. They've been living their lives and directing their thanks to the wrong place. Now, this has got me thinking. How do you think our culture, 21st century Newcastle and Lake Mac, how, how does our culture, how do, how do people in our world give thanks? Where do people in our world direct their thanks for all the wonderful things in this life? I've been thinking about this weekend, I'm, I'm really not sure. It's, it's not like we don't have things to be thankful for, right? Like look at the lake and the beaches and the rich fruits of the Hunter region. Just this weekend, gone that we're in now, this is fantastic. We have it so good. And so where do people direct their thankfulness for all these great things? It could be that our world directs that thankfulness inwardly. Maybe some people think that it's really by their own effort or by humanity's effort and hard work that we have all these things. And so maybe our culture just quietly thanks ourselves. Or maybe our culture has developed I don't know, a way of being thankful that isn't really about thanking anyone. Almost like we don't want to direct our thanks anywhere in particular, we just want to appear thankful. Or maybe we've just become a society that suppresses thankfulness. 
Maybe we've convinced ourselves that this is all just a big accident anyway, and we condition ourselves to stop feeling that right sense of wonder and amazement at life and, and all the ways life can be so good. Just like the Lyconians, that misplaced thankfulness or even that lack of thankfulness is worthless. It's empty. It's a, it's a terrible, terribly empty way of life to have access to so many wonderful things and yet miss out on being able to thank the very one who provides them. And even the one who provides the ability to enjoy it. It's like receiving an amazingly expensive gift from a secret admirer. By not knowing who gave you the gift, there's a sense that you're actually missing out on something because you're not able to thank them. It's somehow unfulfilling. The gift is somehow incomplete if you can't know the giver of the gift. And so all the more with the gift of life itself. That is, one of the reasons we want to tell people the gospel is so that they can live their lives in a proper thankfulness to their creator who made them and loves them and cares for them and who forgives them. That is the greatest part of the great news, isn't it? Now, God doesn't just give us our life now. He also wants us to, he also wants to forgive us for the way we've misused this life now. And he wants to raise us to life with his son in eternity. And so the great news is to stop living without him, without your creator, and to live and direct your thanks towards him. Your thankfulness for life, your thankfulness for his forgiveness, for Jesus, for everything. Well, Paul's words to the crowd barely stopped them. And then look in verse 19, the Jews who tried to kill Paul in the last town in Iconium, they arrive in Lystra and they turn the chaos against Paul and Barnabas. And in what appears like a few seconds, the crowd goes from trying to praise Paul to trying to pelt him with stones. They drag Paul out of the, out of the gates of the city, assuming he's dead, but amazingly, he's not. And so what does Paul do? Well, he's preached the gospel. It's been followed up with trouble, and now it's probably too violent to stay in Lystra, so they go on to the next town of Derby and they preach the great news there. And it goes on again. So here's the question. Paul and Barnabas were opposed, persecuted, and, and even stoned in every city and town they visited on the first ever Christian mission trip. Would you call it a success? How are they going to report this when they return home, if they don't get killed on the way? Well, that's what we see in the last few verses of chapter 14. That's what they're all about. Paul and Barnabas making their way home. Take a look with me from verse 21. They returned to Lystra, where he was stoned, and then Iconium, where there was a plot against him, and then Antioch, where they were expelled. So they returned to all these places, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. This trip wasn't a failure. So many people had put their trust in the Lord Jesus. Households of Jews and Greeks, men, women and children in all these cities and towns had heard the great news of God's love and forgiveness and 
promises fulfilled in Jesus. And so, these are all new churches in these towns. This is one of the things we see in Acts, that everywhere the gospel goes, the church follows. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't belong to a church and sit under some church leadership, because that's how Christians stay Christian, by being part of a church family that constantly gets led back to the scriptures, back to the truth of the gospel. That's why Paul and Barnabas appointed elders and leaders. The church needs leaders, godly leaders, humble leaders, skilled leaders. Christians need Christian leaders. And while this is certainly true of the need for ministers and pastors, it's also true of leaders in every sphere of church life. Christian kids need leaders. Youth needs leaders. Ministry teams need leaders. Growth groups need leaders. Life needs leaders. Every church needs leaders at every level. As we grow as a church, it's been wonderful. Uh, We need more leaders. It's been one of the things I'm constantly thankful for is that so many people here at HBC take up the challenge of Christian leadership. Even if it's just as, as parents, taking that real leadership responsibility for your kids' Christian growth, investing in them, making sure that they grow up as Christians, or, or whether you're someone stepping up to lead a small ministry team or a growth group or help lead an event, it's wonderful. It's Jesus' plan for the church that people take on leadership. That's how people stay Christian. Pray that more people would. Pray that God would raise up more people to consider doing Christian leadership as a job. Pray for our MTS apprentices. We're in the middle of interviewing MTS apprentices for next year. Pray for them. Pray for us as we interview them. Pray that as a church we'll be able to train hundreds more and send them out. But Paul and Barnabas, they don't just appoint leaders in these churches. Look at what they say to these new Christians from verse 22 again. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Troubles, hardships, many hardships. And Paul's been on the receiving end of some of those hardships, hasn't he? And now he's talking to Christians and they have to live in those same towns where Paul was nearly killed. They are going to face hardships too. Just being a Christian will involve hardships. Now, the hardships you and I might face as Christians aren't nearly the same level as Paul and Barnabas faced here in Acts 14, although in many places around the world, they are very bad and it could get much worse here in Australia. But how should we think about the hardships we do face as Christians? Even if they're the small ones that might seem insignificant, but you know the ones that just eat away at us over time that we keep having to make that sacrifice? How should we think about the sacrifices we make for the gospel as Christians? Well, just read from verse 26 with me about how Paul and Barnabas reflect on the troubles and hardships they experienced on their trip. Let me read. From Attila, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had originally been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. All that trouble that Paul and Barnabas went through, all that hardship, all those fights and fleeing from one town to the next, even being nearly stoned to death. At the end of all of that, what do they say when they get home? Well, 
Paul just seems to ignore the hardship and says, friends, God opened a door to the Gentiles even. The Greeks believed in the Lord. In these towns and cities, there are people there who are saved. They're forgiven. They're now meeting in their own churches. They're praising Jesus. Friends, we spoke to people who are now going to be with us in heaven. They're saved. And yeah, there was hardship along the way, but it was worth it. It was worth it. Friends, hardship for the gospel is worth it. The sacrifices we make for the gospel are worth it. The time and trouble it takes to see people become Christians and the time and trouble it takes to invest time and money in helping people endure as Christians, it's worth it. Making the effort to do church with other people during this time, it's worth it. Inviting people to come along to the Life Series and risking that social awkwardness is worth it. The time and energy it takes to be part of a team at church and serve other people so they are encouraged, it's worth it. Using our money to support church and the work of the gospel and buying a building where we can preach the gospel 24-7, it's worth it. In the end, we're all going to look back on the troubles and the hardships and the sacrifices of this life and we're all going to say, it's worth it. In fact, this little this little meeting of Paul and Barnabas at the end of chapter 14 with his church in Antioch is a little shadow of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, we're all going to gather together. And on that day, we won't just hear about people being saved. We won't just hear about churches being encouraged to endure. We'll see them. We'll see the very people for whom you were part of their story. You'll see them there. And on that day, we won't regret any hardship we faced, just like Paul and Barnabas didn't regret what they went through. We won't regret any sacrifice we made. On that day, no matter what we gave up, no matter what we missed out on, no matter what we had to go through, on that day, we will see all that God has done through us, And we'll look back through all the hardship and we will say, it was worth it. Friends, Jesus offers us a wonderful promise that even though we will all face hardship, it will be worth it. Let's pray for that day. Our Heavenly Father, you are so kind. You provide us with so many good things to enjoy. And even though we have misused this life, you have gone to the great extent of giving us your son. And in his life paid the price that we deserve to pay. And you give us forgiveness to enjoy as well. Father, we look forward to the day when we will see what you have done through us by your grace. Please help us to consider whatever hardships arise whatever troubles we may face for Jesus' name and see that they're worth it. Amen.